0: Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be in the first half of Hebrews 10. And uh, while you are turning there, also, I just want to mention one other announcement, uh, an opportunity for you uh, next weekend. We have a seminar that's coming up here called Walk Through the Old Testament. I don't know if anybody has ever done any of the Walk Through the Bible Seminars, but they are excellent. Um, it's next Saturday, February 26th from nine to three. You can register online on the website, and uh, it's a. I did this in, when I was going through seminary. My wife and I went through the walk through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and uh, it was probably the best overview of the Bible that I've been through. If you want an opportunity to walk away with a real clear sense of what is kind of the flow. Of the Old Testament. Maybe right now you just have some random stories in your head. You know about Noah, Abraham, Moses. But if you want to walk away with a sense of what is the flow of the Old Testament and how is God working his plan through the Old Testament, and then even things like the major and minor prophets. You want to be able to name them and know kind of who they wrote to, when they wrote. This is going to give you the opportunity to do that. And so uh, I'd encourage you to consider coming out next Saturday. It's a six-hour deal, but it is worth the time and it is worth the money. The charge is relatively minimal. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it gives you a a book that you'll take with you and then also the seminar materials and um, things along those lines. So I'd encourage you guys to come out to that on Saturday. And uh, we will keep going now. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we're grateful to you that in Jesus Christ we know that we have an eternal hope so much greater than any hope that we would look to in this world. And we praise you that because of the death of your only son and his resurrection and victory over death and sin, we have life. Pray as we study your word that you would allow us to look hopefully to the future you've planned for us, knowing that it's because of Jesus Christ, and then allow us to go into the world and be ambassadors of the grace and the mercy and forgiveness of your son. We thank you, God, and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you have probably heard by now over the last several months that the Crown Prince of England is engaged. Prince William is gonna get married sometime here in April to Kate Middleton, And uh, my wife and I had seen this on the news a few months ago and began to talk about it at our house. And uh, as we were talking about it a little bit, uh, I looked over and saw kind of an unusual look on the face of my six-year-old daughter. And uh, it occurred to me in that moment as we were talking about Prince William getting engaged and that Kate would one day be the queen, it occurred to me that we had talked in the past about how my daughter uh, would like to be a queen when she grows up. And uh, so she had kind of this look on her face of, oh, uh, what just happened, right? Because uh, crown prince got engaged, someone else is going to be the queen. And we had actually, I'll admit, had kind of talked about uh, her options at one point. What are the different countries that still have kings and queens? And uh, I'm not going to lie, England was kind of right at the top of the list. You know, I mean, if you want to be queen, England is the place, right? You definitely want to go there. So now... Uh, it's down to plan B or C, right? You're kind of looking at maybe Spain, Denmark, something like that. But you can see how the options have kind of moved their way down from plan A. Because England is obviously the best if you're going to be a queen, right? And so I saw in her face this moment of all of a sudden uh, this future she'd planned out had become a little fuzzy, a little dark, right? She wasn't sure what the pathway was. Uh, And I share that to say, maybe you have had times where you can resonate with that feeling. Maybe you came into college and you also had a plan for your life. You had a future. You were going to be a brain surgeon, right? And so uh, you're going to get all of these good grades. You're going to take your MCAT. You're going to go to medical school, to your residency, specialization, all this kind of stuff. You're going to land at brain surgery, and then you get two D's your first semester. And that shot that idea down. So things are now a little fuzzy. Maybe it is that you came into college and you said, you know, by the time I graduate, I'm going to be engaged. I'm going to find that special someone and uh, I will be on my way to marriage. Maybe you did. Maybe you found the person, but then in your last semester or your last year, they broke up with you. So now your future is a little fuzzy. You're not sure what's going to happen. I think all of us can relate to the idea that there are times where we look ahead at the future and it just seems kind of dark. It seems very uncertain and we're unsure of where we're headed. Now that's one thing when we're talking about the next three, four, five years of our life. Because over time we tend to adjust, we find a new plan. It's a whole other story if we're talking about our eternity. If we look ahead to the end of our life and beyond, and what we see is uh, darkness and haze and uncertainty, and if we're honest, all of us at some point in our lives have been in that place where we look ahead and we go, what really is going to happen eternally to me? After my body is in the grave, where am I going to go? When this world ends, what is going to be God's plan for it? What does our future look like eternally? And I think it's a critical question, if not the critical question of our lives, And I think it's critical because the reality is if we live our life, no matter how great your career is, no matter how great your family is, no matter how wonderful the things are that you do, if you get to the end of your life and you go into the grave and there is no bright and hopeful eternal future, then everything from birth to death ultimately just seems like a furious race to the grave. Doesn't really matter what I do, doesn't really matter what my career is, doesn't really matter. Whom I marry, if my actions now, if my life now does not have eternal repercussions. And the scripture is very clear that our lives do have eternal ramifications. All right, but as we've been walking through Hebrews, especially this last these last several chapters, one of the things that we've seen is uh, from the beginning of mankind until the time of Christ's coming and death and resurrection, mankind was a little bit fuzzy about his future. In fact, when humanity looked forward at his future, all he could see eternally was death and destruction and judgment from God, and the reason was because of sin. You go all the way back to Genesis 1, you see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and God creates them, gives them perfect fellowship with him, and yet they disobey. The devil leads them to disobedience and sin. That sin leads them to death. And now, throughout all of the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we have these enemies, the devil, sin, death, that keep us from being able to approach God. Keep us from being able to know him like we want to know him. And keep us from the future that is bright and hopeful and joyful in his presence. So the author of Hebrews has really presented this idea for us of sin produces a separation from God. And in the Old Testament, they tried to solve that problem through the law. So you remember we talked about how they would make sacrifices for sin, thinking if we can just cover over our sin with a bull and a goat or a lamb or whatever it is, God will be pleased with us and we'll move on to the next year and the next year. And they kept making these sacrifices. And although the law was good, and although God had given it to them, what they find over the years is that the law is insufficient to deal with their real problem, which is that they're sinners. They're born sinners. And the law can never remove their guilt. And as a result, the future looked hazy and dark until the coming of Christ. Now Hebrews is addressed to a group of Jewish believers who are tempted to go back to the law Because in it, they feel they're going to find security and safety. And what our author has been arguing is this, that in the law, there is nothing but loss of hope. Because all it does is reveal you can never get to where you want to get to. And so now in this final uh, part of this section that's really spanned from chapter 7 to chapter 10... He's finally going to wrap up this section by saying this, that in Jesus Christ, we have freedom from these obstacles, these barriers to the future we really want to have with God. In Jesus Christ, we have the solution that the law could never provide. And that's where he's going to head. And as we go into it, here's what I want you and I to be thinking about as we go into this passage. When you think about your future, what do you think about? Do you think about the next four to five years? Where am I going to go when I graduate college? What's my job going to be? Maybe I better find a date fast so I can get married, so I can have the family I want to have. Maybe I better start looking at houses. And you think about the next few years and the scripture calls us to say, no, you need to look well beyond that. There's nothing wrong with looking at the next few years, but you also need to look well beyond that and constantly ask this question, how does my immediate future affect the eternal future? And am I living my life now and in the future in a way where I can reflect The love and the grace of Jesus Christ where I can reflect the promises of God to a world that needs to know there's a future promise that's greater than anything we can have here. So that's where our author is going to go. But he's going to start by laying out the problem for us, first of all. And the problem is this. The law itself could never remove sin. Remember, if sin is a big barrier between us and our future with God, the law ultimately could not deal with it. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats... To take away sins. All right, if you were here several weeks ago when we talked about chapter 9, you'll remember that in chapter 9 he, he gives a similar type of argument. And what, what the author talks about is what was called the Day of Atonement, the highest holy day of the Jewish calendar. Still today, Yom Kippur, the highest holy day of the Jewish calendar. And once a year, the priest would go into that holy of holies in the tabernacle or the temple. He would take a bull sacrifice it for his own sins and those of his family. He would take a goat, sacrifice it for the sins of the people. They'd take another goat, he'd lay his hand on the, heads of that, on the head of that goat and send it off into the wilderness. Remember when we talked about they would send that goat off into the wilderness, representing that he was carrying away the sins of the people. And over time they realized the real danger is that little goat might wander back. So they would lead him off of a cliff and push him off of a cliff. And year after year after year, they would do this in order to cover over their sins. But the problem he laid out for us was this. First of all, if you were not the high priest, you could never go in to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. So every year, the other priests, the people, they'd see this high priest prepare, put on his special garments, get all ready, get cleansed, and he would walk into the Holy of Holies, do the task, and then he'd come out. The average person could never go in. Secondly, even the high priest could only go in once a year. He would make sacrifice that would cover over temporarily the sins of the people. Then he had to do it again the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year. And it never permanently dealt with sin. All it served to do here in chapter 10, he's arguing, is it reminded them every year that we're not good enough, that we're inadequate, that we're never going to be able to approach God because we bear the sin and the guilt of that sin in a way that separates us from God. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're constantly just reminded of your inadequacy or your failings. One illustration I think of is I had a friend of mine that roomed with me while we were going through school, and uh, he constantly got better grades than I did. Every test, if I got a 60, he got a 100 And so it constantly reminded me, I am not cut out for this major. Uh, Another situation I can think of, when I was in college, I took, uh, as my kinesiology classes, I took tennis. And I had played tennis throughout junior high and high school, and I felt like I was not bad. I knew I wasn't going to be a professional, but I thought I was okay. But then uh, the first year that I took it, I went into my class, and uh, the person that they paired me up with to play almost every day was a, a girl my same age who was about five foot nothing, all right? And that's probably wearing high heels, okay? She was uh, this little girl. I didn't even know at first that she would be able to hit it over the net, all right? Uh, every day when I went into tennis class, she destroyed me, all right? She, uh, she beat me every day and it wasn't even close. It would be like six one, six two every single day. And so I would go in there and every time I went into this class, it was this constant ongoing reminder that I'm never going to Wimbledon. Right? I am never going to be adequate to even beat her, much less to go on to a life of professional fame and fortune as a tennis player. Reminded of my inadequacy, that was the law in a nutshell. Every day, if you sinned, you broke the law, you had to bring a sacrifice. They'd sacrifice it, pour out the blood over the altar, you'd go home. Next day you sinned, guess what? Get another goat, get another pigeon, get another lamb bring it to the temple. Every year, Yom Kippur, priests would make this sacrifice again and again and again, and it constantly reminded them we will never be able to approach God on the basis of the sacrifices that are being made, ever, because we're sinners. So this is why Hebrews 10 here says that the law is only a shadow of the good things, not the very form. The imagery there is uh, the difference, shadow versus form is the difference between a pencil sketch of an artist's painting and the actual painting. Many of you may be familiar with famous painting by Vincent van Gogh called Starry Night. Right, here is one rendering of Starry Night. Now you may notice that this doesn't look like the painting you may have in your mind. The reason is this is his original pencil sketch of the drawing, of the painting, It's not bad. I mean, it's better than I could do, certainly. Uh, But it lacks some color. It lacks some vibrancy compared to this, right? This is the painting you're used to seeing. And the idea is that under the law, we got this hazy image of who God was. The law helped us understand God is holy. He has certain requirements for our life. He takes sin very seriously. And it helped us understand that we're sinful, That's what Romans 7, 7 through 11 talks about. Paul says, look, before the law came along, I may have coveted, I may have had problems, but the law helped me know it. And so now where before I had all these problems internally, when you set a law in front of me and you say, don't covet, now all of a sudden covetousness uh, pops up within me everywhere I look. And the law reminds me of my sin. And so although the law provided this shadow of the way things ought to be. It could never really fully provide what we needed, which was a close relationship with God, a deeper understanding of him. The law could never take away the real problem, which was our sin and our guilt that we're born in. The good news is that Jesus took it away forever. That's verses five through 10. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, wrong chapter, five through 10. All right. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right, here's what he is saying is that under the law, again, all it did was cover over our sin. That's the idea of atonement. Atonement literally in the Old Testament means to cover over. It just put a cover on your sin till next year. So God didn't destroy the people right away. But what Jesus does is he, he dies once. He offers his body as a sacrifice for your sin and my sin. This is the Christian concept of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Jesus substitutes himself in my place. You can never substitute a bull in my place, a goat in my place, a pigeon in my place or yours. Jesus is perfectly God and perfectly man and he substitutes himself on my behalf and on your behalf to take away our sin. Once for all. And his offering satisfies God. I was thinking a couple of weeks ago about the difference between the way I handle stains on a shirt versus the way that my wife does. And uh, it's very different. I learned this shortly after we got married. If I have a stain on an item of clothing, uh, my uh, instinct is just to find something and walk around with it in front of it, right? (laughs) Cover it over. Tuck in the shirt a little further, right? I'll get home, I'll take care of it, right? Hers is to immediately remove it. So if we're in a place where I can change clothes, you say, why don't you go change shirts? We will immediately put something on this, some magical uh, substance that removes the stain, right? And gets rid of it. I want to cover it. She wants to get rid of it, Kids spill something on the carpet, we'll just move the sofa, right? We'll just pull it over it. (laughs) She might say, let's actually clean it out. This is the difference between what the law did and what Jesus did. The law essentially says, move the sofa, cover it over, till next year. We'll deal with it later. And the later was the time of Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes, and once and for all, he deals with our sin. His sacrifice satisfied God, where the law never could. And it may be that you're sitting here this morning and you have not yet come to a place where you believe. And the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a payment for your sin. And the message for you this morning is this, that uh, in Jesus Christ, you could have permanent removal of your guilt before God so that you know you can have eternal life because Jesus died to satisfy God on our behalf. And what he did then in verse 10, what he's saying is, by this will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This idea of sanctified means uh, holy, set apart, useful for God's purposes. And the idea is that when we are covered in sin and the stain of sin, when we are born in it, we cannot be used for God's purposes because we are unholy. God is perfectly holy. And we're sinful. And so what had to happen is somebody had to make us holy and useful for God's purposes and able to approach him. And that's what Jesus accomplished. He removed the stain and the dirt and the filth that was on us so we could approach God. I have a friend from college. Actually, he was my roommate for several years, and he had uh, three sisters. And like any guy with three sisters, uh, one of his favorite things to do was just bug them, right? Just uh, do stuff to get under their skin. And so one of the things that he would do is if he went for a run, or he played basketball, or he was working on the car in the heat, he would come inside. And he's all gross and nasty and covered in junk, and they would say, uh, "You stink. You smell," right? Which isn't nice to say, right? But He took it to his advantage and he would say, well, come give me a hug, right? And he would walk over and he would try to embrace them, right? And they're trying to pull away and they're going, you're disgusting, clean yourself off, but I love you, right? And he would try to hug them and just move forward. Well, uh, he's married now. I don't know if he approaches his wife in that way, but I would bet that it does not work if he tries, right? Because before you approach her, you clean yourself, you remove the filth, you remove the sweat, you remove the grime. And you make yourself holy, right? You make yourself set apart. Think about the utensils in the temple. You couldn't just go into the temple and bring any old fork that you wanted to use for the special incense that burned as an offering to God. It had to be a censer that had been purified with blood and with water. And made holy, set apart for God's purposes. And what Hebrews is saying is that in Jesus Christ, now we have been made holy, set apart. Not only are our sins forgiven, but God can now use us to do His will, to be His ambassadors and His servants in a way that is pleasing to Him, whereas before it could not be because we were covered in sin. So Jesus makes us permanently holy, does away with sin does away with death, and consequently, he defeats all God's enemies. Verses 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The idea is this, what are the enemies of God we mentioned earlier? Well, the devil certainly, right? The devil is the one who incited Adam and Eve to sin. And so his primary strategy was to make us sin, which would lead to separation between us and God, which is death. That's what death is. So devil and then sin and then death, these are God's enemies. Well, Jesus dies. He takes away sin. He rises again to prove that sin is gone and he consequently defeats the devil. Now all God's enemies are defeated in Jesus Christ. And it says, now what Jesus does is he sits at the right hand of God. Priests in the temple never sat down. There was always another sacrifice to be made. There was always something else to do. So they constantly, it says they stood ministering. They didn't go take a nap while they were on duty. They constantly had to stand. Jesus made a sacrifice and then he sits down. And it says he just waits until the enemies are made a footstool for his feet. That is imagery of complete subjugation. If I were to say to somebody this morning, would you just come here and get down on the ground and I'm just going to use you as a footrest? That's not a nice thing to say to somebody, right? It portrays that I'm better than you. I've beaten you. You're under my feet. That's what it says Jesus will do to his enemies. I don't know if you've ever watched in the course of watching a football game, if you've ever watched it and taken note of that point in the game where it's clear that one team is going to win. Although there's still time on the clock, they have the game sewn up. Maybe they're so far ahead that there is no way the other team can win. Maybe there's a little bit ahead, but there's not enough time for the other team to really make a play and do anything. And watch those players who know that they've won on the sidelines. You can see them relax. They sit down. They're hugging each other. They're cheering. Maybe they grab some Gatorade. They dump it over the coach's head. Well, technically, there's still some downs to be played, right? There's still some time left on the clock but they know they've won the game. This is what Hebrews says is our situation in Jesus Christ. There's still a little bit of time left in the game. And we still feel the effects of the enemy's work on our life. We still feel the effects of sin, but the reality is that Jesus has already won. He has the victory. And so now all we do is we wait for the time Jesus will return and he will permanently destroy his enemies. This is Revelation 20. Verse 10, Jesus throws the devil and death into the lake of fire. Verse 14, he throws hell into the lake of fire. And he defeats his enemies once for all. Now we just wait. And why do we wait? The scripture says because it's during this time that God is being patient. Peter says, 2 Peter, God is being patient. Not wanting anybody to perish, but he wants all to come to him. And so we wait while God is graciously making the offer of life and an eternal future for those who will believe in Jesus. But the battle's already won. Jesus defeated God's enemies once for all. As a result, we know we can approach God with hope and with confidence. The day of judgment for you and me is no longer a day of terror and fear, but a day of joy and hope. For those who know Jesus Christ. Verses 15 to 18. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Because of what Jesus has done, now God can actually live within us through the Holy Spirit. God doesn't remember our sins and lawless deeds anymore. And as a result, we can approach God with confidence and hope, knowing that we will not be destroyed when we try to approach him. Old Testament, if you tried to walk into that holy of holies, guess what? You're dead. God would strike you dead because you're not holy. And what he's arguing is now you and I can walk right up in hope and confidence, knowing that we're forgiven. Remember, we talked a while back about how when Jesus died on the cross, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle was torn top to bottom in two, paved the way open so you and I can approach God. So the day of judgment now for us is a joyful day where our God will deliver his people. We're all familiar with the concept of judgment. If you're a student, you're familiar with it because uh, you probably have tests this week. Judgment day is coming, right? And I can remember numerous times as a student when uh, I looked forward to that judgment with fear and trembling because I knew I was unprepared and I knew that the judgment was going to bring pain and sorrow and shame before my parents and others, right? So I wasn't ready. And there were other times I would walk in and I was ready. And I knew that I was going to take that test and at least do okay, if not well. And I looked forward to it. A whole different attitude. You ever looked forward to a test? The reality is you probably have if you knew you would do well. That's what Hebrews is telling us. Because Jesus has removed the barriers between us and God, we now look forward to the day when he will return destroy his enemies, establish his kingdom, and that's our hope and that's our future. So what's our role now? To live as ambassadors of that hope so that all the nations will see men and women will come to worship Jesus Christ as you and I are called to do and that they can share in the eternal hope and future that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And so... Whatever your career is, whatever uh, your family looks like, whoever you end up marrying, whatever your future looks like for the next few years, think about your future in terms of this or the things that I'm planning toward, the things that I'm considering. Am, Am I motivated by a desire to bring the greatest glory to God and most effectively teach to men and women the truth about who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ so they can worship him too? Because God has provided us a future so much greater than what we ever could have had through any means on this earth. So as we close, quick question. Will you reflect to others the bright future and hope provided by Jesus? There may be different ways to do this. Maybe you go onto campus this week, you share the gospel. We have a group that goes out on Wednesday afternoon. We have a group that goes out on Friday afternoon. and go out and they share the gospel on campus with those who may have never heard So they can also experience the future that is in Jesus Christ. I talked to somebody just this morning about the possibility of going overseas on a summer trip. Unfortunately, the applications for this year are closed. But if you're here for another year or two, take the opportunity at some point during your college career, go overseas, see what God is doing among the nations, and be a part of bringing men and women from all the nations to worship and know Jesus Christ. And then as you go throughout your day, pray for those in your classes pray for those around you, love them, and yes, share Jesus with them and be an ambassador of the truth of God in Jesus Christ, that he's removed the barriers that separate us from God, he's defeated all the enemies, and now he promises us a bright future and hope. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Father, we confess that often we get so caught up And what's going to happen in the next month or even the next 24 hours? Maybe the next several years. But Lord, we forget on a daily basis to keep our eye on eternity. I pray that we would. I pray, Father, that we would share the hope of eternity with those we come into contact with. And we would go throughout our weeks worshiping and rejoicing because you've given us eternal life in Jesus Christ thank you, we praise you, and we just ask be with us this week as we seek to do your will. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. See you next week.